when I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is June 30th, uh, 1989, and my home group is the Backroom Group. We meet in Nashville, Tennessee uh, every Saturday and Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30. And if uh, you're ever in Nashville, I hope you'll come by and join us. Doug's already made it clear that I wasn't your first choice to be here. <laughs> and uh, 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 That is often the case. And uh, uh, for those of you who are here tonight and disappointed that Don M. isn't here, I, I, I don't blame you a bit. And the Don is one of my favorite people and uh, uh, and I think a, a great example of Alcoholics Anonymous and a great uh, communicator and articulator of the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, I'm not confused about the fact that I am uh, here in his place. I'm simply filling his time slot. And uh, I'm also not confused about the fact that you need to hear what I have to say tonight. But uh, uh, I do know that I have an absolute need to say it. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, Doug asked me as we were sitting there before the meeting started if I got uh, nervous before I talk. And uh, what I've discovered is I only get nervous when someone asks me if I get nervous before I talk. And uh, I start thinking about that. But I tell you, the only thing that really concerns me is I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would never want to do anything from this podium to dishonor Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only concern I have. Whether or not my talk is a good talk, in quotation marks, or a bad talk, truly doesn't concern me anymore because you're going to get the best I got right now. And that varies greatly from day to day. And, uh, you know, I call my sponsor, uh, 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 Joe S. in Richmond, Virginia, and I'd, uh, uh, first I was getting ready to speak one time before the largest crowd I'd ever spoken before at that time. And I said, Joe, I'm, I'm a little nervous. I have never spoken before this many people. And he said, Steve, don't worry about it. He said, by the time you're done, it'll be down to the size you're used to. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that helped keep me in my place. And then another night I, I called uh, Joe, who's just always comforting to me. And uh, I said, you know, Joe, I just don't think I did a very good job tonight. And he said, well, Steve, you're starting from a false premise. He said, because that implies that there's another night you think you did do a good job. <laughs> and he said, the fact of the matter is, is that you are not in charge of determining whether you did a good job or not. He said, your only responsibility is to stand up and, and share your experience, strength, and hope and try to do two things. There are two things that I believe I find in the book Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm encouraged to try to do this evening. One is to share in that general way what I was like and what happened and what I'm like now. And the other, uh, uh, the book says, and in our personal stories, each teller in his own language and from his own point of view talks about how he established his relationship with God. And a little further it says, and this was really good news for me, uh, that there may be a wide variation in the way each teller conceives of and approaches that power. And that our experience has shown us that for our purpose, that need not matter, this wide variation. That's why I think Shannon spoke to it today about this broad and, and, and roomy highway and that uh, God doesn't make, uh, uh, we're, it's, we're inclusive and not exclusive here. And uh, uh, so I hope before I'm through here that I will share a little bit about uh, uh, about how I've established a relationship with the, with the God of my understanding today. Uh, I told you that my, and, oh, and I want to I thank the committee and, and uh, uh you know, I don't know why I'm thanking them. They didn't invite me. But uh, 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 
but they've been awfully nice to me since I've been here, and uh, uh, and I do appreciate that. And you know what? I, I love I love AA conferences, and I love them whether I, I'm, I'm standing here or sitting there. And I'm going to tell you what what the, the biggest joy for me is is when I'm uh, privileged enough to be invited somewhere and get to spend time with people. And you know, we at, at different parts of the country, and we show up for these weekends pretty much on our best behavior and at our best. And and uh, and that's great. And, and our collective consciousness is, I think, greater than our individual consciousness when we're all drawn together. And as as much as uh, you know, I will uh, enjoy the opportunity to share a little bit for the next while from this podium. The real magic at these conferences for me happens at uh, lunch today with uh, Doug and Lee and Scott and uh, dinner tonight and having coffee with people in the uh, hospitality room and the ride over with Scott from the airport. Uh, that's where the real magic happens. And I think that these that, that these speaker slots are just a framework to build that around. And uh, so I'm thrilled to be here and I appreciate the opportunity. I told you that my sobriety date was June 30th, 1989 which means that I now have to tell you what I consider the most embarrassing thing that I'll share from the podium tonight, and uh, that's my last drink. Uh, you know, I've looked around this room in this hotel over the last couple of days that I've been here, and I've come to the conclusion that there's some bad alcoholics here. <laughs> and my last drink was an amaretto on the rocks, and I am appropriately embarrassed by that. <laughs> so what I hope you now know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that I did not know that was going to be my last drink when I took it. I just would not have gone down that way. Uh, uh, you know, the little advance notice that, Steve, this is your last drink. I don't know I don't know what I would have come up with, but I would have, you know, like the last meal on death row, I would have contemplated long and hard uh, what I wanted, but it would not have been an amaretta, but I had no intention of stopping drinking. What I was was scheduled to go into a treatment center on July the 1st of 1989, and I was scheduled not because I'd had some epiphany and wanted to make an uplifting change in my life, and not because I had decided that, that I wanted to stop drinking. I was going to fulfill my obligation to the Williamson County legal system in the state of Tennessee. I had been convicted of my sixth DUI the year previous. I had been given some jail time, and I had been given the opportunity to go to in-house treatment uh, as the uh, part of my probation to knock off some of that jail time. So I was going to go. And uh, July the 1st is when I was scheduled. So my wife, Connie, and I went out with some friends on June the 29th. Uh, uh, we had dinner, sort of a going away party for me. Uh, uh, I ended the night with an amaretto on the, on the rocks. I smoked a joint and I went to bed. Next day I got up and Connie and I were going to spend that day with our then five-year-old daughter, Abby, uh, at Chuck E. Cheese before Daddy went away on a 28-day business trip. And uh, as a little personal uh, uh, public service announcement, I, I have to stop here and tell you that uh, I, if there's anybody here who hasn't stopped drinking yet, do not spend your first day sober at Chuck E. Cheese, okay? <laughs> it is really loud in there, and that is not a good place to... Uh, 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 to spend that last hangover day. But that's where we were going. In July the 1st, a buddy of mine came by to pick me up to cart me off to this treatment center, the harbors of Brentwood. It was barely five miles uh, from my house, and I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea what, what lie ahead for me. I could not have imagined. In fact, I 
remember as we were driving over there, my friend Ricky said, he said, Steve, what do you think this deal is going to be like? I mean, I was, I was, uh, afraid. I was anxious. I, I was uncertain. I just didn't know anything about, uh, uh, treatment, uh, uh, alcoholism. Uh, what I thought I knew turned out to be all wrong. Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew nothing. They were calling it drug and alcohol rehabilitation, and frankly, it sounded painful to me. It sounded like something that was going to be excruciating, and as we drove over there, he said, what do you think this deal is going to be like? And I said, I have no idea. I said, I'll tell you one thing. I said, I'm not going to get in some little circle and go, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic, and tell everybody the, the greatest, uh, deepest, darkest secrets of my life. And about two weeks later, I was just telling people more than they wanted to know about me over there, you know? <laughs> I start making stuff up. Uh, 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 Alcoholics Anonymous is an amazing place to me. It's a place where a guy like me will, will deny, deny, deny for years that my drinking is that bad. And then once I join this esteemed fellowship, I'll start lying about how bad it was. You know, I want to get some street cred in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, uh, some bad boy reputation in Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, so I started making stuff up right away. Uh, I didn't have a clue what was what was laying ahead for me. Uh, what had happened was in March of 1988, I had left a uh, uh, a bar there in Brentwood, which is a suburb of Nashville. I went the wrong way on the uh, on the street uh, outside. There was a car coming toward me. I nearly hit that car. I drove off into a Colbert wrecked my car, and I came to the next morning in the Williamson County Jail. So I came to. I was dressed very much like I am tonight. I had uh, I had been that evening had started as a uh, business uh, dinner. Uh, uh, as our book says, we can go anywhere and do anything if properly motivated and spiritually fit. I was neither that night, and uh, uh, I had no good purpose for being there after dinner was over and the other people had left. Obviously, I got pretty drunk. I left. I wake up the next morning, come to in that jail, and uh, it's not the first time that I had come to in, in jail, and it's not the first time that my next move was to call my wife, Connie. Uh, it's the first time Connie's mother had been visiting us when I did it, so that didn't go over too well, and uh, Connie didn't come get me. Uh, she suggested that I try someone else, and uh, finally a man came in uh, and paid my bail. Went and took me to my car, and that afternoon uh, uh, I went uh, and sat in front of a lawyer. And that lawyer asked me a question that no one had ever asked me before that I recall. Anything I tell my story will be from my perception looking back at it, and, and, and I could be wrong about some of the facts. I won't purposely tell you a lie, but I could be mistaken about what happened on some things. And what I find over time is while my story doesn't change, my perception of what happened changes. Sometimes it clears up. Sometimes I see it in a different way. But what happened that afternoon was as I sat across from that lawyer, I also had a DUI that was being tried in Davidson County, the neighboring county in Nashville at the same time. My lawyer there had suggested this lawyer. Um, uh, this lawyer was looking at the accident report, and he was looking at the arrest report. And he looked at me, and he said, Steve, do you think you've got a drinking problem? And I said, you know what, pal, what I think i got is a legal problem. And I would appreciate it if you would focus all of your time and attention on solving this legal dilemma that I have. And he said that he would, and I think that that was appropriate, and he did the best that he could. And we played around with that for a, for a few months and got continuances and did all the things we do to try to manipulate the legal system. 
And they were trying to put me in jail for a year because of the uh, number of DUIs I'd had and, and were using words like chronic and habitual and those types of things to describe me. And uh, finally, we go and he's trying to plea bargain it out after we've uh, run out of runway on uh, on trying to postpone this thing. And uh, he went back and he talked to the district attorney and then he came back out and he said, Steve, here's the deal. He said, it's a, you know, he looked like Perry Mason had just, uh, uh, you know, got some acquittal uh, on, a, on a murder case. He said, you just have to do 60 days in jail. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, I just don't think I'm a 60 day in jail guy. Uh, uh, would you go in there and talk to him one more time? And he said that he would, and he did, and he came back about a half an hour later, and he said, Steve, it's not going to get any better than this. He said, here's the deal. You do 10 weekends in jail, and you go to in-house treatment. And uh, uh, as if I had a choice, I agreed to do that. And I know that I've got alcoholism today looking back at it for what happened next. It's not that I ran and took a drink right then, but uh, but to me it was an interesting phenomenon, and it's described in our book pretty clearly, that I can't distinguish the, the true from the false, and that I'm strangely insane as it pertains to alcohol. And uh, I'm, I'm leaving that courthouse, and I am now more, the thing that I'm most afraid of in the world is going to jail. I just don't think that I've got the skill set for jail. You know, I don't have the survival skills to do well in jail. I am, I am not a tough guy. And, uh, uh, I'm walking down the courthouse steps, and the decision that I made is that for the year of this probation, I will not drink. I mean, I just, I don't want to go to jail, so I got this probation. I'm just not going to drink for a year. And it was, it was a firm decision. It was resolute. I was committed to it for about a minute and a half. And, uh, I was walking to my car, and sometimes I think that perhaps I just parked too far away from the courthouse. Because as I walked down the steps of that courthouse, my plan took on a revision. And the revision was, wait a minute, whoa, 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 Steve, don't overreact, pal. I said, the problem is you're driving when you drink. So the new plan is I absolutely will not drive when I've been drinking, and I will not drink when I'm driving. And you can absolutely depend on that. Unfortunately, I wasn't to my car yet, and I walked a little further, and my plan took on yet another revision. The new revision was I won't drink much when I drive. Huh. Now, we sit here tonight and giggle at that, and we, we recognize how absurd that thinking is. But see, I, that day, I thought that this had been a logical progression that made sense. In my home group today, we call that type of thinking alkalogic. And I think that's, uh, that's the logic that I was using that day. But that, that didn't seem absurd or crazy or silly or nutty. It seemed like an absolute reasonable plan. And looking back, that's how I can continue to confirm that I have alcoholism. Uh, I told you about that uh, that last drink. I'll go and tell you a little bit about the first drink now. You know, I tell my story a little bit uh, uh, like Quentin Tarantino makes movies, if you've ever seen a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's a whole series of, uh, of uh, unrelated uh, uh, shot out of time sequence uh, uh uh, scenes that seemingly aren't connected at all that magically by the end of the movie come together and make perfect sense and I am hoping that happens tonight. Okay? <laughs> uh, 
But I'll go back to that first drink now, and it's equally embarrassing, frankly. You know, I was a good kid. I was not, uh, uh, there is no good reason, circumstantial reason for me to be alcoholic. So I know that circumstances don't cause alcoholism. I think they might can exacerbate alcoholism. I think they might can fuel alcoholism. But I don't know that it causes alcoholism. But I don't get too much into that debate one way or the other. I just have my own experience. And I came from a middle-class family in a little town uh, outside of Nashville called Smyrna, Tennessee, about 5,000 people as I was growing up there. You know, mother and father were staying together. I got the older brother and sister and uh, the younger sister. And uh, I did what was expected of me. I was uh, well-behaved. Uh, if I said I'd be home at 10, I was home at 10. You know, I, I went where I said I'd go, and I came back when I said I'd come back, and I was dependable. And uh, uh, yet... I know that I had I had insecurities and fears and self-doubt and all of those things. I don't know if I felt that more acutely than people who aren't alcoholic. I just don't have a clue. Uh, what I do know is that when I began to drink, alcohol treated those feelings in a way that perhaps it doesn't the non-alcoholic. But for a long time, I did exactly what was expected of me. It wasn't hard for me not to drink. I was around a lot of people that were drinking and during that time doing a lot of drugs, and it wasn't a challenge for me not to do it. You know, our book says that if a mere code of morals or philosophy of living were sufficient, many of us would have recovered long ago. It doesn't say those are bad things to have. It just implies that they're not sufficient to address the alcoholism that I have. Now, I've got a progressive and fatal disease, and it wasn't yet progressed to the point that my moral conviction and my philosophy of living uh, could not uh, could not stay in line. So they worked for me right up until the day they didn't work anymore. So one day a couple of buddies of mine come by and they said, we're going to go back. Uh, uh, I was a freshman in college. My father had died unexpectedly a few months before. That's not why I drank, but I think it made it easier for me to drink without having to be concerned about uh, uh, the consequences there and disappointing him and, and everything that went along with that. It just made it easier. Uh, two guys came by. They picked me up. We were going to go to a basketball game back at my high school. A guy hands back a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine. You know, I hate it when people moan like that when I bring up the Strawberry Hill because I, I know, I know that tells me that you've been there. Okay. When I see a lot of people my age have got their start on that Strawberry Hill wine, but I understand your your disgust, and it's uh, uh it just shows that my both my first and last drink are just so sweet. You know, you could put it on your pancakes out there. It just it's embarrassing, but uh, it's something I've got to live with. And uh, uh, they handed that wine back to me, and 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 I took a drink, and and. Uh, passed it back up and it found its way back to me and I had another drink and you know everyone a lot of people describe that uh, that that ooh wow experience that they had with alcohol now I, I had probably had a drink before I'd probably had a sip of daddy's beer I, I I don't recall but this was the night that I was drinking and the experience that I had in the back of that Volkswagen was that all of a sudden I could not wait to get where we were going because I assumed that they could not wait to see me when I got there. And I had never felt so good about being me. I had never been so excited to be going where I was going. I'd never been so thrilled and, and anxious to spring from the back of that Volkswagen and uh, thrust myself on an unsuspecting world. Uh, and it was fantastic. It felt wonderful. Now, I blacked out that night, and I'm a blackout drinker, and uh, uh, I thought that was pretty natural, but I had a wonderful time. And I don't know if I was alcoholic 
before I took that drink, and I don't know if I was alcoholic right after I took it. I don't know at what point I became alcoholic. I don't know if I drank alcoholically from that moment on, but what can I, I can assure you is that I drank enthusiastically from that moment on. I drank aggressively from that moment on. And the book says that, you know, that, that we cross that line sometimes from heavy drinker, that invisible line, from heavy drinker to alcoholic. And I don't know when I crossed it, but I'm pretty sure I was drinking when it happened. <laughs> and uh, 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 I just didn't see, you know, the book says it, that, that, that many of us, don't say all of us, but it says many of us probably could have stopped drinking early on. But when I could, why would I? And by the time it seemed appropriate or necessary, I could not. So I went on and I began drinking at that point. And, and as I said, I drank uh, aggressively with enthusiasm, with gusto. Uh, uh, and I don't know, if, you know, it looked like the people around me were drinking like I was. I don't know about you. I mean, and I was in college. I was 19, 20, 21 years old. And, and there was partying going on everywhere, partying by a lot of people that didn't turn out to be alcoholics. But over time, I began to notice that people were growing up and moving on and accepting responsibilities and being you know, looking like they were being the type of person that I hoped I would grow up to be. I thought that growing up was a chronological certainty, that it was a physical thing that happened, like when you turned 18, you were a different person than the boy who was 17. But that didn't happen for me. And then I thought, well, that must be 21. That's when you're a man. And that I will then magically ascend to uh, to, to the man-like status that I saw other people around me doing, and I turned 21, and that didn't happen. That feeling didn't happen for me. Well, maybe it's 25 and it didn't happen. Maybe it's 30. You know, I was now running out of time. And I was still feeling like a boy. And uh, 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 so I look back and I realize that it's not just my drinking that puzzled me and the consequences of my drinking that bedeviled me, but it's the way that I felt sober that was so puzzling to me. A guy that seemingly had... Uh, 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 no circumstantial reason to be having hard times. I, I mean, you know, like I said, there, there just weren't tough things going on in my life. Yet on a Tuesday afternoon, sitting in my office with a uh, later on with a wife who loved me and a daughter who loved me and, and a good job and a decent place to live and things going on, why was I so unhappy? Why was I so unfulfilled, sober? And then I find in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that it says setting aside the drink problem, they asked themselves why they were making such heavy going of life. And why was I making such heavy going of life? That's what that's what I now look upon as the unmanageability of my life. You know, I don't I don't necessarily think of the unmanageability as the chaos that surrounds some of us because of the consequences of our drinking, though that's fairly unmanageable when we can't pay the rent or we've got this going on or that going on. But the unmanageability uh, uh, that I've identified for me in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous is on page 52, and it's simply referred to as our human problems. Doesn't even call them our alcoholic problems. It's a prey to misery and depression, bouts of fear. I can't be of real use to other people. I can't make a living. And I don't think that means, for me, it didn't mean earn money. It meant that I, I, I can't get any sense of satisfaction or fulfillment out of the work that I'm doing. Why do I feel that way? I couldn't answer that question. Um, you know, I went on. I began to have one of the things that uh, that I'm bad to do is drive and drink. I, I totaled six automobiles, and I got six DUIs. 
and I had a multitude of other accidents that were that were less serious. And I just tended to bump into things, you know. I mean, I my car was just like a bumper car. I just hit, I'd hit somebody in this parking lot, and then I'd hit my garage when I got home, and I'd hit this pole backing out of this place, and you know, bing, there goes a fender, there goes a tail light, and uh, uh, uh and I want to stop and say because I'm gonna tell a couple of driving and drinking stories because they're mine and they're true. But I really need to make clear that that given a little time and perspective, uh, I can refer to these in a fairly humorous way. But I don't for a minute think that driving and drinking is funny. And I don't for a minute, I, I absolutely understand that in a crowd of this size, there are some people in here whose lives have been directly touched by drunk drivers, either being one or or their lives impacted by one. So please don't think I'm making light of this. Uh, but a couple of things that happened to me. I moved to uh, uh, Florida in 1976 and 77. I was there a couple of years. I ran away from home, basically. It's the only time that I haven't worked in the family business that I'm still working for today. Well, two-year hiatus, I went down there. I'd already had a couple of DUIs and some wrecks by this time, but some guys who were unfamiliar with my driving history gave me both a job and a company car. And... uh, uh uh, I was hanging out with some fellows one evening over there, and we were watching Monday Night Football, and, and I was uh, uh, drinking heavily and accessorizing that with some other things. And as I got ready uh, to leave, I was going down this residential street back to uh, back to my house, and it was uh, uh, I'm flying much faster than I should have been going on this residential street, and there was a little horseshoe turn, and I didn't navigate that horseshoe turn, and I hit this big tree, and I mean, man, I, I hit it hard. Bam! You know. Knocked out the front windshield, the back windshield, caved in the passenger side. Uh, it was a mess. And ultimately, the car would, would be rendered a, a total loss. Uh, but I could not afford to stay there and have the police come and, and get another DUI and, and lose this job and blow this deal. Uh, so amazingly for me, the car would drive. So I don't get ahead of me now. So I, I back this thing up. And I start driving back over to my to my buddy's house that I'd been at, and uh, I mean it is the frame's bent so badly it's driving almost sideways, and it's just kind of hopping over there, and that that the shredded glass is is blowing in on me, and people are watching me. I said, "Oh God, just please let me get over there," and and this was just taking forever. Finally, I make it. I'm going to go in there, and and we're going to concoct a plan that uh, how we're going to move forward with this. And so I get in, and you know Larry Curley and Mo began to put their plan together, and. Uh, <laughs> And the plan we came up with was that we'd have a couple of cups of coffee. Uh, these guys would get back in the car with me. We would drive back over there and drive back into the tree. And uh, not hard. We, you know, we weren't going to speed into the tree. After all, we'd have some coffee now. We were sober not. But what we were going to do is, is ease back into that tree and then call the police now to come. And these guys would be there, and they would serve as uh, witnesses to validate my story that a white Ford pickup had run me off the road and caused this horrible accident. So I'm walking up to the house at the corner to knock on his door and borrow his phone to call the police. So I'm walking up there. This guy runs out the side of his house. He is flying down there where we are. He goes, are you okay? Are you guys okay? I said, yeah, man, we're okay. And he said, well, it's the damnedest thing. He said, you're the second guy to hit that tree tonight. <laughs> and, uh, 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 yeah, they ought to move that tree. Uh, 
that tree is obviously ill-placed and, uh, and a hazard. And we did call the police, and they came over, and we did tell them that story, and I told them White Ford Pickup, and we gave them a partial description of the driver, and we gave them three numbers off the license plate. And, uh, you know, I'm the kind of guy, three or four days later, I'm getting a little bit of resentment that they hadn't solved this crime, that... Uh, <laughs> You know, you give them that kind of information to work with, they ought to come up with something. And uh, 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 But that's, that's the type of, of absurdities that my life was filled with. But nothing I did drunk surprises me in the least. Anything that happened to me while I was drinking is not a puzzlement. I was drunk. You know, that covers a, a, a whole host of ills. Most anything, our book says when the alcoholic drinks, something happens. I about my only change in the big book would be that sentence should end in an exclamation point and not a period, because I think something happens major when I drink. But again, how I felt just on a Tuesday afternoon sober was a puzzlement to me. The fears, the insecurities, the lack of fulfillment, uh, uh, why I was making such heavy going of life. A little while later, I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's 1980, and, and, uh, and, and I'm in Atlanta. And I was at a TGI Friday's over there one afternoon off Sandy Springs Road, uh, uh, um, drinking kamikaze shooters, and I'm taking two and alls all afternoon. And I finally leave there, and uh, I got on the interstate going the wrong way. And I hit a car head-on on the interstate going the wrong way, and two other cars hit that. It totaled all four cars. It sent some people to the hospital, but nobody was badly hurt. I woke up and uh, came to in the Fulton County Jail the next morning. And I had urinated on myself and I'd thrown up on myself. Or, you know, I say I hope I did because somebody did. And, uh, uh, when you go down in the drunk tank, just anything might happen in there, you know. But, uh, uh, that's the state I found myself in. And I will tell you, uh, in all earnestness that I was, uh, as ashamed as I had ever been. And I was as afraid as I had ever been. And I was as humiliated as I had ever been. And I was as certain as I had ever been that I would never drink again. And a couple of weeks later, I'm driving down the road smoking a joint, drinking a bottle of wine, thinking I nearly overreacted to that. And then I find in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous where it describes me when it says there'll come a time when a guy like me's lost the power of choice over drink. And I won't be able to bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I'll be without defense against the drink. And that's the way I found myself. So so what I now know looking back but could not figure out as I went through it is that there is nothing, there are no consequences or circumstances sufficient to render me sober and keep me sober over an extended period of time. The love of a wife and the fear of losing her is insufficient. The love of my daughter and, and, and the fear of not being the father that I wanted to be and that she needed is not enough. The fear of losing a job is not sufficient. The fear of going to jail is not sufficient. None of those things are sufficient to get me sober and keep me sober. Because there'll come a time when I won't be able to bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the way I felt in that jail cell that morning. After Atlanta, I moved back to uh, to Nashville, and I met my wife, the woman who would become my wife. And i got to tell you, my wife is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous as well, and her sobriety date is 10 days after mine. And it's a real important 10 days to me. Uh, I tell her, anytime we have an argument or a disagreement, I said, honey, just wait 10 days, and you'll see how right I am about this. And, uh, uh, 
I don't want to give up that advantage, you know. <laughs> Though she does not believe it, nor does my sponsor believe it. My sponsor, by the way, has made clear, he said, Steve, you know our time. We mark time, and, and it, as we did with the sobriety countdown. And it's impressive. For those people that have been sober a long time, I am real impressed by that because that means there's a whole lot of living that's gone on, and people have been able to stay sober uh, through it all. Uh, but he said that measures the time between your last drink and today, but it does not measure your spiritual growth. And my spiritual growth ebbs and flows and comes and goes. And uh, uh, so, so time does not garner me anything above anybody else except uh, except time. Uh, but my wife, unlike perhaps some other spouses, uh, uh, when I headed off to that treatment center that day, she just made one thing real clear to me. She says, "Do not stop drinking." She did not want me to stop drinking. She was afraid I might stop drinking. She did not want that to happen. And while I was in the treatment center, she, she too stopped drinking, independent of knowing whether I was or not. We uh, uh, frankly didn't talk but once during that first 10 days. Uh, but she's now an active, sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, uh, and we've got a wonderful relationship. And I owe that to this program. Now, I talked to her before I came down here tonight, and uh, she had uh, our, that daughter I talked about that's now about to turn 21 next month and is going to school in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about 200 miles for, from our home in Nashville. Connie talked to her on the phone last night. And then she talked to her again on the phone this morning, and, and I talked to Connie this morning. She was going to head to her, to her mother's uh, for something today. Well, I called her back tonight after dinner when I went back to the room, and she says, well, I'm on my way back from Knoxville. She had just not liked something she had heard in our daughter's voice and drove over there 200 miles to have dinner with her. Spent an hour and a half and turned around and come back. That's the kind of woman I'm married to. That's the kind of family I'm a part of today. And that's because of an alcoholic phenomenon. I was incapable of that. And we were, she was incapable as well. So this program has gifted us in that way. Uh, I want to go on and get me to that treatment center. You know, a lot of things happened. I did meet Connie. We, I don't want to say that we were alcoholic when we got married, but, you know, we went on a trip to Mexico and ended up getting married on a boat in international waters by an Austrian captain who read the ceremony in Spanish. And uh, uh, and some people thought that wasn't going to take. But, uh, uh, but here we are. And you know what? There were a couple of times it almost did. And... Uh, 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 what we have found in our experience is that we're, we're, I won't say that we're a rarity, but there, there are no shortage of marriages that do not, uh, uh, survive recovery by one or both partners. And, uh, and it's because we change so much and we had to rediscover each other in our sober lives and we had to determine over time whether it, we were both good people, but, but did we fit? As the as the twelve and twelve talks about in relationships, when it talks about that, there'll come a time, you know, when everyone will want to have the the deepest possible union with someone in the areas of physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional. And I can tell you that we are compatible in all those areas today. And I will tell you that that doesn't mean that we are the same in all those areas. But our compatibility comes from a mutual respect and a lack of uh, of insecurity. That, that today she is absolutely free to be herself and I'm absolutely free to be myself and, uh, uh, and, and we're so comfortable in that and it's a real gift. Uh, I end up, uh, 
going into that treatment center. And as I said, I didn't I didn't walk in there that day as an alcoholic. Given all the episodes that had plagued me, uh, I still didn't necessarily recognize and understand and identify that I was an alcoholic. I knew alcohol caused me some problems. I'm like the guy in the big book, uh, or like it describes that uh, uh, that I, I can't tell the truth from the false. I can't differentiate it. It says, well, I know that drinking is injurious. I knew my drinking was causing me some problems, injury. But it seemed the only normal one. It seemed the only normal one. Now I'm in that treatment center, and they gave me an assessment. I think uh, 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 Shannon may have referred to the 20 questions uh, today. They give me their version of, of those test uh, assessments that many of us have taken. AA, we've got our own, I think, 12 questions and 44 questions. You know, there's, and, and these went something like this. Have you ever had a drink in the morning? Have you ever drank alone? Have you ever had a blackout? Have you ever had a DUI? Have you ever had a problem at work because of drinking? Have you ever had a problem at home? Now, the lady who was giving me this stopped me. She said, Steve, have you ever means even once, even with a really good reason? So I'm listening. I've got the paper. Now I've got to answer it. This is a tough test for a guy like me because there's only check yes or check no to what are obviously essay questions. These questions, you know, these questions require some explanation. You need some details. You know, yes, I have drank alone, but they left. <laughs> Had they told me where they were going, I would have gone with them. <laughs> yes, I've drank in the morning. You know, the answer was yes to most of them. In fact, i got to tell you the honest truth, that after uh, I'd... I'd uh, uh, about seven years ago, I was moving from Richmond, Virginia, back to Nashville, and I and I had gotten my uh, file from the treatment facility I'd been in, and I found my whole file, uh, and in it was this assessment, this test, and I looked at the questions again, and as I looked at it, I realized that I had answered yes to ten of them. It said if you answer yes to two or three, you're problem drinker, three or four, you're you're alcoholic, and four or five, you're chronic alcoholic, which I wasn't sure what that meant, but seemed like a promotion over regular alcoholic. <laughs> and and I looked back in, and I realized I'd answered yes to ten of the questions, uh, uh, which you know, doesn't impress anybody in, in this group, but upon closer inspection, I realized that I had lied on ten others. Looking a little closer, I realized I had misunderstood a few others. And the only one I know for certain and for sure that I answered honestly is I never drank while pregnant. And um, <laughs> not even once, and not even with a really good reason. But uh, 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 and now I'm in there, and I'm, I've been in there a couple of days. Uh, I went in on on July 1st, which happened to be a Saturday. The rest of the group went out to an AA meeting that night, but I was not uh, yet allowed to, to travel out. The next day, being Sunday, two men brought a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous into that treatment facility. For those of you who go into treatment facilities, I, I thank you. I'm so grateful for the people that came in there that day. Now, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't know anything. You know, this was I, I didn't know much. I didn't know how to differentiate what these guys were about to do versus what they had done all day that day in the treatment center. Um, what I noticed right away when these two guys came in, though, is that they were fanatics. They were AA fanatics, and I've, I've seen some of you this weekend. Some of you are here. And here's how I knew. When I checked in that place, uh, uh, they had issued me a 
$15,000 big book. Some of you have had one of those. It was even a soft cover, as I recall now. And these two guys came in, and they had this book that looked similar to the one that I'd been given, except they had these really fancy leather-bound book binders that had AA burn in it. You've seen people with those. and had their name on it and had all the decoration on it. And I thought, oh, man, but AA's got a summer camp somewhere. And I'm going to be making lanyards and billfolds and moccasins. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to get on that bus when it takes off. I want to be real careful. But the fact of the matter is those men came in that night and and they came in, like our book said, and I think as was uh, mentioned from the uh, podium today during the sponsorship uh, panel, they came properly armed with the facts about themselves, as our book says. And and someone in that state can win over the entire confidence of another alcoholic. And see, when I am most dangerous today is when I forget that and I show up someplace properly armed with the facts about you. I am ineffective when I'm telling you about you. But when you are telling me about you, my defenses are down. When you're talking to me about me, I'm preparing my response. I am preparing to defend myself. But when you're talking to me about you, I can listen. My mind can open. I can hear differently. I think that's the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that we share about ourselves and our own experience. And that's what those men did that night, so I was unthreatened. And while I don't remember what was said that night specifically, what I know looking back is that they were speaking the language of the heart. But I know looking back is that what happened, what transpired that evening, superseded the intellectual exchange of ideas that was happening. That they were bringing a message that had weight and depth, and it's a spiritual message, and it is the only message that Alcoholics Anonymous has, and it is the only solution that Alcoholics Anonymous has. No matter what problem I bring to Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter what living problem after I set the alcohol aside, no matter what great detail I go into explain it, when I'm done, the solution is the same. It is yet a deeper dependence upon God. It is an acceptance and a belief and a faith. It's a spiritual solution to a worldly problem. That's the only answer that I find in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not about technique. It's about finding. It's a message that has weight and depth. And that's what those men brought to me that night, a message that had weight and depth. Now, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't jump up and start speaking in tongues in that meeting that night, you know. I didn't, I didn't become a convert. I wasn't ready to be an alcoholic, but I was impressed by the two men that showed up. I'm not sure I even understood the message intellectually that they were bringing, but I knew that there was something about them that I was drawn to. And immediately we began going out to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs, to be fair. And other 12-step programs came into that treatment facility, and I'm grateful for that. But I didn't want to be an alcoholic. What I knew is that the minute that I say out loud I'm an alcoholic, somebody's going to suggest I stop drinking. And I didn't want that to be the solution to my problem. You know, our book says that we'll try by every form of self-deception possible to prove that we can drink successfully. Self-deception. I'm not trying to deceive you anymore. I've got to try to deceive me at this last point in my drink that I can drink successfully. I had a man come in when I was living in Richmond, Virginia, and he 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 flew in from out of town. It was a, a business meeting that we were going to. I'd never met him before. 
He didn't know I was uh, uh, an alcoholic. He didn't know that I was in recovery. And and I saw no need uh, uh, early. You know, that's, I didn't tell him coming off the plane, hey, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, 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 we just went to lunch before we were going to our business meeting. At lunch, he had two or three beers. And after a couple of three beers, he began to explain his drinking to me, which is something that I understand. And uh, he said he'd been on the wagon for a while, and I was out of town, and he was having a few drinks. And uh, I said, hey, man, you know, it's none of my business. That's That's fine. We went and took care of our business. We went out to dinner that night. At dinner, he began having several more drinks and talking about it. He began to talk to me about his drink. And I still hadn't said anything. And uh, he said, you know, I'm having some problems at work. He began to, he, he went into specific detail, but he had problems at work because of his drinking. He had the problems at home because of his drinking. His wife was on him. His brother-in-law had already come over and tried to 12-step him. And I said, I asked him a question. I know it's not a fair question. It is not a fair question to ask an alcoholic. I said, have you ever thought about just stopping? And he hung his head for just a minute, and then he looked up and he said, you know what, Steve? He says, I'm afraid I'll stop, and I really didn't have to. <laughs> Man, I get that. I don't know about you. I get that. Whoa, what if I, what, maybe if I just come at it one more time from a different angle, try a different way. You know, one, as our book says, one more attempt, one more failure. But man, I don't want to stop too soon. Because the book describes me when it talks about a guy's the great obsession of every abnormal drinker is that one day he will control and enjoy his drinking. I'm a, I was obsessed with that. And all that means to me is I want to have all I want and not have any problems as a result of it. See, the thing that's seductive about alcohol to me is sometimes it worked real well. Thank you. Sometimes I got just what I needed from alcohol. But I got where I was unpredictable, as other people have talked about you know, it talks about in our book what most normal folks get from a few drinks. You've seen it back in a vision for you, and it says for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality. I didn't know what that was. I thought I'd been arrested for solicitation of it a couple of times. <laughs> As it turns out, it means feasting and drinking. Uh, it means uh, uh, friends, colorful imagination, and a feeling that life is good, release from care, boredom, and worry. I mean, man, that's a, you know, I get thirsty just saying that out loud. That's an attractive package. You know, that is, uh, that's, that's enticing. But not so for a guy like me. I mean, that's what I wanted. That's what I hoped for. That's the relief for those human problems that I was feeling of, of, of fear and misery and depression and all those things. Man, all I want some joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. You know, just hanging out with the guys, doing the deal. But time and time again, it says that's not the way it is for a guy like me that was in the latter days of his drink. One more attempt, one more failure, it says. It says for a momentarily, I might feel that. It says, then comes oblivion and the awakening to face the hideous four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. Boy, that's a bad package. You know, I just want a little joyous intimacy with friends, and I wake up with these four bedfellows over here, you know. Ooh. Ooh, that's who was with me that morning in that jail cell in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Terror, bewilderment. How did I let this happen again? Why would I do this? Despair. Am I ever, ever going to be able to get past these things? What a feeling. What a feeling. So I show up at AA and I'm hanging around for a while and uh, I get out of that treatment center and I start going to meetings at uh, 202, the Friendship House there in Nashville. And I walk upstairs at the clubhouse there 
And at the top of the stairs, you can you can go to the right, and there's a room that I at the time thought must hold two or three hundred people, but in reality, it's about forty or fifty. And there's another little room that holds about twelve or fifteen. And I happened for no particular reason into the little room. And that room at one o'clock in the afternoon was a big book study, and it's where I met some people that changed my life. And it's where I met the real program of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous that changed my life. People that were willing to take me into the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. People that had a regard for the integrity of the message that's in Alcoholics Anonymous. People that that uh, had a love for the heritage of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they helped me find myself in that book. They didn't pound me with that book. They didn't preach at me with that book. We simply looked at it. And they gave me an opportunity to find where I fit what was there. And boy, I did. And you know, once I found a place, once I found people, once I found a book that I thought absolutely did understand my problem, then I began to have a little interest in the solution that you might be offered. You know, if I'm not interested, if I don't have the problem, I don't want the solution. And then number two, if I don't want the solution, I'm not willing to have this problem. You know, if this is the solution, I don't want to have the problem. Well, right away, though, I got to tell you, I got excited about being, about going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if I was in it yet. I don't know if I was going to stay sober. I don't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what, what was required. I'm, but, 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 man, I was, I was attracted to the people right away. What a fascinating group we are. You know, hey, hey, it's just Jerry Springer show every day at Alcoholics Anonymous, isn't it? Except we're Jerry Springer with a solution. With a solution. So I'm going there. I thought these are fascinating folks. And I'm hearing stuff that's just blowing me away at every meeting. You know, I'm sitting there at about 30 days sober, and there was a newcomer in the room, and for the first time, it wasn't me, you know. And and so so everybody starts talking to this guy who had, you know, uh, mistakenly introduced himself as the newcomer, and then we start preaching at him. And uh, uh, everybody give their little spill, and they said, keep coming back, it gets better. Next person talked a little bit, say, keep coming back, it gets better. And that went on four, five, six, seven people, and finally there's... Uh, Old guy over there in the corner, Herb, Herb had been asleep for a good part of the meeting, and Herb had a, he, he had a tendency to sleep, uh, uh, in the meeting and get up about halfway through the meeting and say something and then walk out of the meeting. And he, as he walked out, he'd say, I'm glad y'all got to see me today for all the usual reasons. And then he'd just head on out the door. Well, this day it's, it's not half past the hour, so Herb's still there and it's, uh, going around. And it got to Herb and he says, I'll tell you when it gets better. He said, it gets better when it's okay the way that it is. And man, my head started spinning. And I couldn't figure that thing out. Now I'm driving home and I'm thinking, yeah, that's it. That's it. I keep waiting for things to change, for me to be okay. I keep waiting for her to get better, for it to get better, to get more money, to do for all of you folks to do what I need you to do. Then I'll be okay. But Alcoholics Anonymous is an inside job that doesn't require anything of you for me to find a life that can be happy and content and useful. At about 60 days sober, I'm listening to another woman in there. This thing's going around, and she's talking, and she said, you know, I've discovered that Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about having a life free of problems. It's about living happily, effectively, and usefully in a life with unresolved problems. You know, I used to think I couldn't be okay until I get this fixed. What about those resentments we get? You know, resentment, that's the number one offender. Destroys more alcoholics than anything. I mean... 
as a group, we're an amazing bunch. I know that I have the, the capacity to still remember be hurt and crushed by somebody who cut in line in front of me in the third grade, you know. I can remember that, yet I can minimize all the devastating things that I did to my family and everybody I loved for years. I can find out, well, that's not a big deal, but that son of a gun that cut in front of me in the third grade in the lunch line, you know, if I ever see it, I'll get it. Well, I no longer, I thought I had to resolve every issue before I could be okay. That's not the case. Shoot, I don't have to resolve anything to be okay, except find my own peace of mind. Uh, I got a sponsor there very quickly. I talked about him today a little bit. Frank D. was my first sponsor. Now, a year sober, I moved over to Richmond, Virginia. Frank and I had done some, some step work, not all of it. I go over to Richmond. I get me a sponsor over there named Joe S. Joe, I already told you what a thoughtful man Joe is here earlier. Uh, 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 one of the other times that I left the meeting and called Joe, I said, Joe, I, he was, had been at the same meeting I was, and it was, by the way, a discussion meeting until I started talking, at which point it became a speaker meeting. And I told, I called Joe on the way home, and I, I said, I was worried about it. And I said, Joe, did I sound self-righteous in that meeting? And he said, Steve, you are still asking all the wrong questions. He said, see, you don't care if you were self-righteous. You care if you sounded self-righteous. In fact, you don't care if you were self-righteous. You hope they didn't catch you being self-righteous. You are worried about what they think about you, not who you are and what you are. Joe has, has a real ability to expose me in the most positive way, expose me to the truth about me. That's what you do for me here at Alcoholics Anonymous, is you expose, not in a humiliating way, but you help me see the truth about me. We got to step six and seven, Joe and I were talking about it. And, you know, he had said, in how, we were reading through how it works one day, and he said, you know, it says that some of us try to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. And I said, Joe, that bothers me a little bit. Uh, I said, because that implies that all my ideas, all my old ideas are bad ideas. And I said, you know, I showed up here with some real good ideas. And uh, he said, Steve, I am sure that you did. He said, I had not heard any of them yet, but I am sure that you did. Uh, he said, but the problem is, is that you can't tell the good ones from the bad ones. So you need to set them all aside. Go through this process and the truth will find its way back. That's what you've done for me at Alcoholics Anonymous is help me find the truth. Help me help me be willing and humble enough to set aside everything I think I know, even the stuff that I thought was working. Set it to one side and be willing to 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 not just surrender to my problem of alcoholism, but to surrender to the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous that's here and surrender to that power greater than myself that I'm looking to for the help that I can't I can't do by marshalling my own resources alone. I went to Joe. At about six months sober, I lost a bunch of money gambling. Now, I'm not going to turn this into a gambling meeting. I will just tell you that, that, that not only do I gamble, I don't even think gambling's a big deal. You just can't do it as poorly as I do it, uh, uh, and, and I can't fund it. You know, I just can't lose that much, and, and I, my, it had been a big problem for us, and I'd lost a lot of money a lot of different times, and it was caused a real hardship in our home. And, and finally, I had, uh, uh, at six months sober, before I moved to Richmond, I'd gone to Las Vegas, which I had to go two or three times a year for business. Lost a bunch of money. And you know how much a bunch is. It's just more than you've got. And uh, uh, that's how much I lost. And I came back. I didn't want to tell my wife. I went to Frank. I said, Frank, do I have to tell Connie? And, you know, he and I have a difference of opinion about what he said. Because I don't know what he said. I know what I heard. And I thought he said no. And uh, uh, 
but he said, I think you might, uh, uh, he said, Steve, you, you know, I think that, that Alcoholics Anonymous would guide you to do that. I think that if you don't deal with this now, you will have to deal with it later, and it will be a bigger problem by the time that you do. I encourage you to. But, you know, and, and, and bless him for this, but he said, but if you don't, don't leave the club, you know. Don't go get drunk, because if you stay sober and keep coming back, you will figure out what you need to do over time. And he didn't require me to show up that day perfect. He gave me time to learn and grow in Alcoholics Anonymous. And sometimes I I am guilty of requiring somebody to get too good too quick. And I think that we need to allow people to get here and grow. But I moved to Richmond, Virginia, and, man, I'm loving AA, and I'm loving being sober, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm cranking it up all over the place, and I'm now about two years sober. And I don't have this debt that when I say I lost this money in Las Vegas, that means I borrowed it from my bank to pay them in Las Vegas. I didn't tell Connie I'd done it. Now I've got this... Uh, uh, post office box that I've gotten so when they send uh, uh, the paperwork and everything it doesn't come to my house you know I'm working this whole juggling this whole lie thing that we do and I you know and and over time in AA this little pebble is becoming a boulder I don't know what to do then I come into some money that Connie doesn't know about it's going to allow me to pay this debt off uh, uh, and I'll be square and she won't have to worry about it I hadn't gambled anymore in that year and a half uh, this will be a good deal so uh Go out with my sponsor, Joe, who I had not yet told this story to. Because you tell them, they're liable to ask you to do something about it. And uh, as I walk through this thing with Joe, and I'm telling him I, I, why now, I've been around AA long enough now that I know about this amend thing is, is except when to do so would hurt them or others. And I have become very sensitive to protecting Connie. And uh, so as I explained to Joe why I should not tell her, cause, and I meant, you know what the truth is, I meant it. I didn't want to hurt. I, the things I said were true. The facts were right. But I said, Joe, I don't want to hurt her. She doesn't deserve this. I don't want to destroy her confidence in our marriage. She had, I'd signed a contract. She was going to leave me uh, if I had gambled again. Um, all of these things I got done, I said, what do you think? And he said, Steve, I think you're a coward. And he said it with love, but he said, he, he said, I believe that you believe all of those things you said, and I believe that you care and that you don't want to hurt her. But he said, he said, above all that, more important than all that, he said, I think you're afraid to face the consequences of the truth. And Alcoholics Anonymous is about living with the consequences of my actions today. It is about being accountable for what I do. It's about being willing to stand up and own who I am, warts and all. And that's been a valuable lesson for me. Uh, I haven't told you everything that I'd hoped to tell you from up here, but I, but I never do. I've already told you more than you hoped I would. But uh, uh, but I do want to uh, I do want to end. I, I told you that I would uh, share a little bit about how uh, I established relationship with God and my understanding. I'll tell you that when I went into that treatment center, uh, uh, I I don't know if I was agnostic or atheist. Uh, uh, I, I was apathetic, uh, perhaps with regard to to a relationship with God. I I, I had not paid any attention. It didn't cross my mind. It wasn't a big deal to me one way or the other. I certainly wasn't relying upon any power other than myself that I could tell. And all of a sudden, this big book that I've become so excited to find uh, has a line that says, uh, and you guys have seen it over on page 44, that uh, we hope in the preceding chapters we've made clear the difference or distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Okay? And it summarizes it for me. It says, hey, you know, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't stop entirely, or if when drinking implies to me that these are two separate things. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. Okay, you got me. I'm clearly in the camp of the alcoholic. And then it hit me with the worst news I'd heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. If so, 
You are probably suffering from a disease which only a spiritual experience can conquer. I did not think I wanted a spiritual experience. I didn't know if one was available to me. I didn't know if I was willing to do what it took to get a spiritual experience. I didn't know if I would recognize a spiritual experience if I had it. You know, none of that felt right to me. I was very uncomfortable with the word spiritual experience, with the word God, with the word prayer. Any of that stuff made me real uncomfortable. I'd had no bad experience. I just made me uncomfortable. So in that treatment facility, when our little group would be done and we would gather up like we will at the end of this meeting tonight and hold hands to say the Lord's Prayer, I would step away from the group. And I would put my hands behind my back and I would stare at the ceiling and I wouldn't participate in the prayer. And after doing that for a while, one of the men in there, a guy named Mike O, Mike grabbed me one day and said, Steve, what is that all about? What's the deal with that? That's well, Mike, I just uh, don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, uh, I said, I don't yet know what I believe. I, I just, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm not going to do something I don't believe in. And he just laughed at me. I mean, laughed again, not that, that knowing laugh, that laugh that lets you know it's going to be okay. You're not the only guy that came through here thinking this stuff. And he said, Steve, he said, I got, Good news and bad news for you. I was talking to Shannon about this morning. He said, good news and bad news. I said, Mike, I'll play. What is it? He said, the bad news is, is that hypocrisy is way down your list of problems. He said, and you might want to address them in the order in which they will kill your ass. (laughs) What's the good news, Mike? You know, he said, the good news is, is there's room for another hypocrite in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, uh. And I was thrilled to hear that. Uh, And I don't mean it in a, and he didn't mean it in a disparaging way. Man, we come here espousing the very best and falling short on a regular basis, and that's okay. The 12 and 12 said that we must aim for perfection and be willing to settle for patient improvement. So it's okay for me to talk about perfection, do my best, and fall short of it. But, uh, uh, but so today, the way I've been able to establish a relationship is through the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found it in the chapter We Agnostic. You know, it says that uh, that no one can fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So all of a sudden, I don't have to define or comprehend God. That has freed up some real time for me. That was outside my ability, so I can let that go. Then it goes on a page or two over and says that deep within every man, woman, and child lies the fundamental idea of God. It says in the last analysis, it is only there that the great reality may be found. So now I know where God's hanging out, deep within so I know where to look. It's a it's an inward look that I'm taking, and my journey is inward. And it goes on to say, however, my relationship with that God may be obscured by pomp, by worship of other things, and by calamity. And to me, I think that pomp is the ego and the pride and the self that reemerges and blows up. And I think that calamity is about anything that I've decided just can't be happening to me. You know, sometimes it is sometimes it is real and difficult and hard news that a lot of people that I've gone through and that a lot of people here have gone through. And sometimes, you know, the cable just goes out. And I think that's a calamity. And then it says, in worship of other things, is any of those things that I put between me and that God of my understanding, anything I place above him is going to obscure my vision and my relationship with that God. And then it goes on to say that as I draw near to him, he will disclose himself to me. And that's what happens for me here at Alcoholics Anonymous. As I, as I draw near to you, through the steps of this program, through the fellowship of this program, he discloses himself to me through you. A friend of mine in Nashville, a gentleman named, uh, named Mo H., Mo Holleran, Mo passed away January a year ago. 
and the October before that, Mo had been diagnosed with cancer. And Mo was a man that I loved greatly, and and, and I believe as a, a good a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and as good an example of the demonstration of living these principles in his daily living as anyone that I'd ever met. And he's a guy that never gave up on anybody. And Mo had been diagnosed with this cancer, so a, a friend of mine, Jerry, we went to breakfast with him one morning, and we met him for breakfast, and uh, uh uh, Jerry had gone to get his car, and I had a few minutes alone with Mo, and we were talking. And every time that Mo had ever told this story, and I had heard him about seven years uh, uh, previous for the first time, he he uh, quoted uh, a verse from a poem, and it, it it described and explained my experience so clearly that I had always been moved by it. So we sat there this mor- that morning, and it was clear that he was going to be passing away soon. I said, Mo, would you mind if uh, when I'm given the opportunity to tell my story? Uh, if if I end with that poem, I said, because it will help me honor you and remember you, and I believe it will help other people as well. And he was he was a little embarrassed that I would ask, but he was clearly pleased. And uh, he said, Steve, if you think it will help another draw, go ahead. And I know that it does, because every time that I do, it helps me. If I sought my God, my God I could not see. And I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. I sought my fellow man and found all three. And that's been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. That through my experience with you, my fellow man, fellow travelers on the path of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, that I have found my soul and I have found my God, and I thank you for it.